1: Welcome in. This is the monthly Arch Capital episode for CCM Plus subscribers. I will describe what the Arch Capital episode is, uh, but if you haven't listened to the others, there is one more in the queue right now, and that is Spotify. Um, But we plan on doing these once a month. But before we talk what it is and then what company we're talking about today, as a reminder, if you are on Apple Podcast, email us at chitchatmoneypodcast at gmail.com and let us know that you have subscribed. The spelling is down in the show notes, and we can get you on our mailing list for CCM Plus subscribers. You'll get show notes and other information charts that go along with each episode. All right, Ryan, today we're talking Electronic Arts. Um, This is a company we own in the Arch Capital portfolio. Uh, We've owned it since the beginning. Uh, You know, I guess it's been a holding for the entire time, although the fund has only been open for less than two years now. But we're going to be talking about why we own it, what the company does, competitive advantages, some of the long term growth trajectories, and why, in general, we like the stock at its current valuation. Um, Anything else before we get into the details of what these type of episodes are? What should listeners expect from these monthly Arch Capital episodes?
0: Well, for the time being, we are trying to encapsulate, we've been doing these themes. If you've been a CCM Plus subscriber, you know we've been doing these like, Themes. So we did video gaming this last month. So we try to wrap it up with the video game stock. We're gonna to try to do that as long as we can. Although we only have so
1: many holdings in the Arch Capital portfolio, so it just might not work out. But um, well, yeah, we'll we'll come up with something else, uh, different themes when the time comes. Yeah,
0: yeah. And so we went through four, or was it five, video game companies over the last month?
1: Four: Capcom, Rovio, Ubisoft, Xbox, and now we're doing the fifth which is a company we own electronic arts that kind of fits in with all those other ones.
0: Yeah, and it's uh I recommend if you, if you can listening to all those episodes after you listen to this one because it gives you an idea of and we're going to get to this, but it gives you an idea of the stability of EA versus some of the other developers. Um there's just lumpiness lumpy results is a part of being a gaming company and some of the more mature businesses have proven an ability to smooth
1: out those results. Um, and do what they say they're going to do. Like some of the other companies that we've studied, historically, they they claim they're going to be doing stuff and they actually don't execute. Um, electronic guard sales will kind of describe, has some competitive advantages that allow them just an more easier more time. Yeah, it's an know. easier time. Uh, But yeah, let's get into it.
0: Yeah, let's start there. Um the way we're going to do this, we're just going to ask each other questions. So I'll let you kind of explain for anyone that doesn't know what is Electronic Arts.
1: Yeah. So Electronic Arts is a multinational video game publisher. They own many different game development studios, um, but they have a focus on the console and PC franchises, but they also have a growing presence in the mobile market over the last 12 months. Just for reference, 61% of their sales came from consoles and consoles just mean Xbox, PlayStation, and Nintendo Switches, although the vast majority of theirs will be the Xbox and the PlayStation systems. And then 22.5% is uh, revenue coming from PC games. And then 16.5% is from mobile. And mobile mostly equates to smartphones. So think Android or iOS. Um, The company owns and operates many different franchises. You likely know them for their EA Sports brand, but they own much beyond that as well. The most important, and this is in descending order from most important from a revenue perspective to the least important, at least some of these might be an estimate, but generally these are the most important. So FIFA Soccer, which is soon to be EA Sports FC, Apex Legends, Madden NFL, The Sims, Battlefield. Um, then I have a category here of other sports simulation franchises, which include hockey, golf, Formula One. These are more niche, you know, durable audiences, but a lot smaller than football or soccer, And then the Star Wars Jedi series, which they have a relationship with Lucasfilm and Disney to make a lot of games for the Star Wars uh, brand. And then for a comprehensive list of studios, we're going to put out these notes, most likely in the newsletter. There's a nice graphic from one of their latest investor presentations, and it shows all the different studios they have around the world that are operational and all the games that are under development. Now, these are not... All of the games that EA has under development, there's some that are hidden. Um, they don't do everything released to the public, and there are always titles that are not formally announced. I think we just had today one that got announced. I didn't get a chance to see it on Twitter, but the big thing is that they have a lot of games in the pipeline. They always do, and that's you know the benefit and maybe you know you get that diversification as a a large video game publisher now after building the games ea markets and distributes them it's pretty self-explanatory explanatory through both digital and physical versions an example of a digital version is download and add-on content purchased through console smartphones, or pc platforms like steam and then physical packages i think everyone knows and you know well they're the discs that are bought at retailers like best buy over the last 12 months, less than 10% of their sales came from packaged goods, making the majority of EA's business now going through digital platforms like Xbox, iOS, and Steam, which have higher margins because of the packaged uh, goods you have. I think it's a, it's about a 6% to 10% gross margin advantage. And that's that's
0: 10% of total revenue, but of games sold. So keep in mind, there's two, two revenue streams here. Essentially, you've got revenue from... Microtransactions, so purchases within the game, and then the purchases of the actual game itself. Of the games being sold, sixty-five percent are digital. So there's still plenty of upside in terms of of more games being sold online. For anyone that's not understanding it, or if we have any listeners that aren't gamers, it really draws a perfect parallel to like. The, the movie industry, Blockbuster versus Netflix. The at-home movie industry, yeah. yeah. And yeah. how everything kind of went on to streaming. I, I think that's, you're probably going to see that same exact evolution. It feels very similar. So, um, yeah, just keep going.
1: Yep. And only a few notes here. It's a pretty simple business. But lastly, I think the other thing investors should understand is that the majority of EA sales now come from these live services and other, which are the microtransactions that Ryan was talking about. They categorize it, if you're looking at their investor reports, as live services and other. Um, This is everything that is in a full game purchase. Here is the full definition from EA's SEC filings. Live services and other net revenue include revenue from sales of extra content for console, PC, and mobile games, licensing revenue, subscriptions, advertising, and non-software licensing. So basically everything that isn't full game downloads. And over the last 12 months, 73% of EA sales have come from the live services category, which has grown as a percentage of revenue over the past decade. Um, You know, The majority of this is, and again, like I said, FIFA and Apex are the most important franchises here. And then on top of that, there's Madden NFL and Sims. Um, But it's a lot of add on content for, say, the FIFA soccer game where you're buying packs, players, all that good stuff, or Apex Legends where you're buying skins um, for your characters, guns, whatever it is for the shooter games. Um, And this is the most important category to track because that has been the majority of growth for EA over the last decade. Now, before we get into the investment, we do need to give some more context. So Ryan, can you give some history and important context? for electronic guards with business because it's a very not a very old business but one of the oldest gaming businesses out there.
0: Yeah, and there's some sometimes history is more important for certain companies uh but EA it's it's been I'd say the last 10 years or have sort of been, it's a very different business today than it was 20 years ago. Um, but to give some context, anyways, the, the company was founded in 1982 by a, a man named Trip Hawkins. So Trip was an early Apple employee. Um, I think he was there when there was like, a, I want to say, gosh, I, I'm going to get the early days. A tiny amount of employees. When they went public, though, he had a whole bunch of stock, sold it basically got this windfall of cash and he always wanted he'd always been and like loved the gaming business he wanted to start his own company from even while he was at Apple he knew he wanted to do this and so he went off launched his own which was basically just software for computer games um and early on I think they are he already had a relationship with Sequoia so the they they got some funding from Sequoia Capital I think it was five million dollars in total funding so there was and and for the time, that's, that's a decent amount. So they were pretty well capitalized, um, early on and they got some office space in Sequoia's, uh, office park, um, that, that was kind of the really inception of the business. And it really became one of the early premier game publishers. So, and it's pretty much held that role for 40 years now it's, they, early on, it was simply just PC games, um. computer games i should say and then whatever console was out they would build for that as well whatever console was popular at the time and and often it was basically this war between sega um and nintendo there may have been some other ones as well but those were like the two
1: yeah there was atari we don't need to really go into all the details for that but yeah
0: and they 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 became sort of the well-known publisher and it was there's kind of this I don't want to say iconic moment, but an important moment in their history that embodies the company that they still are today. So in the late 80s and the early 90s, Nintendo was really successful. They were the dominant console and EA wasn't making games for them, which was a sacrifice in terms of revenue. But they said EA was unwilling to abide by Nintendo's conditions, which would have involved agreeing not to provide the same games to Nintendo's competitors, such as Sega. So by remaining platform agnostic they took a risk on not receiving Revenue up front but as the consoles kind of as the console ecosystem evolved this ended up being the right decision because um, it allowed them to be more popular with with a larger fan base with different consoles and kind of maintain a positive relationship and be that independent publisher um and they they An early employee who I believe was there for a long time basically said our basic competitive advantage is that we can publish games across multiple platforms simultaneously in a cost effective way and in multiple languages and deploy it globally better and bigger than anybody else. I think that really encapsulates what drove their success for the first 30 years of their business and probably even still today. Um,
1: Size matters. Yeah, in this, in this industry, as a publisher at least,
0: having the scale and the resources to build for different consumers and different geographies on different platforms isn't easy. And uh, Nintendo's maintained that in fact, that advantage for a while. You mean EA? Yeah, sorry. EA. <laughs> well, Nintendo
1: is well. and Nintendo maybe, but yeah,
0: yeah. Um, and so. I guess other important parts of the business was throughout the 90s they started landing a lot of big licenses um and so the ones that probably come to mind are fifa and madden but there was also a lot of other ones that they landed that kind of sparked or ignited the strategy so there was a one game cover that was like larry bird and dr j um they had some with james bond they had some with NHL, the NHL Players Association, uh, PGA. This is when they really started establishing their licenses, and they would throw their. This was really just. It wasn't about having the rights to characters or or some of the IP that those brands had. It was more just for attracting consumers because the games weren't that advanced at the time. So by putting FIFA on the cover or by putting John Madden football on the cover, it really attracted consumers to the game and it kind of built up this sort of brand loyalty, brand notoriety. Um, It obviously became more important later on as live services became a component and you wanted the rights to the actual players that were uh, under a lot of those brands, but those really helped establish those relationships. And it wasn't until, uh, I think it was 2004, that Sega had success with their ESPN NFL 2K5 game when they did that they stole a bunch of market share from ea and ea realized okay we need to lock these in and signed super long term exclusive agreements with a bunch of leagues and that really helped them dominate the uh the the various sports that they were in the only one that they really lost in was basketball
1: which and is yeah take opens. 2 in, yeah take 2 interactive well there's think, three big categories right football american football soccer or international football and uh basketball and EA has two of them but NBA 2K is produced by Take-Two Interactive now. And
0: NBA chose to be uh chose to not have an exclusive deal. So so EA had produced several basketball
1: games. It, yeah, it, and they still could I guess right now, but that kind of yeah. goes into the competitive advantages we'll talk about later. It's not worth it for them to do basketball because 2K yeah. is just there's no way they can compete with them. But on the flip side can anyone compete with fifa and madden i guess we'll discuss that further
0: right and so that, that that's why getting those sort of landmark licensing deals was really important at the time was even if you built like all right take two obviously has the big notable basketball game in nba 2k but ea 15 years ago could have built a basketball game and still had a decent amount of sales it wasn't like all the sales were skewed to one provider now today with the live services you pretty much, it's not worth the development costs unless you already have the name in that sport. And so that's why EA has been able to maintain for, I guess, what is it now? Since the mid nineties, their prominence in football and soccer, mostly there's also PGA tour and stuff like that. But those games are pretty minuscule in terms of revenue for EA. Um, I guess the only other parts of the history that I think are important last 10 years last 15 years john ricchettello came in as the ceo in 2007 his big um i guess accomplishment was that he reorganized the company into into, into individual studios that operated autonomously uh, at the time there was less creativity that was kind of the knock on the company at the time and so they said we're going to separate these into independent studios there's four major labels i believe it may have changed since then but There's four major labels. They all operated autonomously um, and it allowed them to be a little more creative and produce more games. Then he was, to be honest, pretty underwhelming as a CEO. So Andrew Wilson came in, I think it was 2013. He's the current CEO today. The last 15 years, only real important content The only other real important points as far as history goes, they've made a lot of acquisitions, a lot of mobile related acquisitions.
1: Yeah, And that was accelerated the last uh, year. If we look at their history, when Wilson took over, he did not like he thought Riticello over acquired. And then they only they they really slowed down the acquisitions. But the last year, um, which I guess we'll go through in our capital allocation discussion, uh, they've re accelerated the, the acquisition spree.
0: Yeah, and then part of a big a big component of their success over the last decade has has really it, it isn't it is not even credit to them. I mean, they've obviously had to play into it, but it's just been how the industry evolved. The games have become more interactive. Gaming today, you want to play where other people are playing, and so that's created what is largely a winner take all market for most for most of these sports based games. So. Uh, I, I know I already alluded to it, but there's no real global competitor to FIFA. There's no real global competitor to Madden. Um, that's because you want to, you know, it's so interactive today. So much of the revenue comes from live services. So it, that's really been a tailwind for them. And then also the the move to digital has really increased margins. I think gross margins have doubled over the last decade. So um, the, that's, uh, do you think I'm missing any important history? okay well that's that's pretty much it as far as history goes what about uh let's let's talk about the revenue drivers today so what what are the dominant revenue lines for them and then what are the biggest costs
1: yeah so to be clear they don't put most of the time they don't talk about the individual revenue from each game but reading through the tea leaves and stuff we can kind of parse out what are the most important ones and they have give some notes from time to time so as discussed briefly above you know The two largest sales drivers are the full game sales and live services. And we can separate the different franchises into those driven by live services and then those driven by full game downloads. And remember, the most important are these live services games. So the big four live services games are FIFA Soccer, Apex Legends, Madden NFL and The Sims. And they all sell a lot of these microtransactions, in-game content and this also includes mobile for the majority of these i know apex legends just launched their mobile game fifa soccer just revamped their mobile game we maybe will talk about that later in the risks fact, uh, section how they're investing heavily into the mobile market right now and how they really haven't executed well within that the last few basically the last decade as mobile has taken off and become the largest part of the gaming industry and then on top of that again there's the niche sport games hockey golf racing and then the second category would be full game downloads. The ones here, you know, you have Battlefield, Star Wars Jedi, Mass Effect, Dead Space, and then a lot of other smaller ones. Now, Battlefield, if executed correctly, should likely be in the live services category. However, they've really, they've had some uh, disappointing games the last couple of releases. And there's been a reorganization there Um the company's executed well in spite of it, but this has kind of been the one that's been disappointing out of all the franchises that could be live services. Now, within the sports categories and then Apex Legends and The Sims, they've executed well, but within Battlefield, that's kind of been the one they missed on. Now, EA also owns a growing portfolio of other mobile games that are not attached to its core you know, console or PC franchises. Um, it has bolstered this portfolio in the last few years through acquisitions of Playdemic, Glue Mobile, and Metalhead Software. In the show notes, we'll have a reference list here of all, I think, the 40-plus acquisitions they've done over the years. You can kind of go through those and see when they were heavily acquiring companies when they haven't. Um, And then if we want to go through the cost and kind of show how they have the margin structure they do, there are three major costs outside of standard corporate and back office expenses. First one are fees paid to platforms like Xbox, Steam, and the smartphone makers, which take a cut on every dollar spent inside of EA's games, or I guess for the game, if you're on some of the platforms as well. These fees make up the majority of EA's cost of revenue. Um, Last fiscal year, cost of revenue was 27% of net revenue. So I think when you're looking at, you know, and there's some other stuff in the cost of revenue, like payment processing fees and some data center stuff, but... Most of it is that fee paid to the public or excuse me, the platforms like Xbox or Steam. Uh, We would expect this to probably stay around the same level and possibly go slightly lower, which would increase their gross margins this decade, but not much lower. I mean, a lot of juice on the gross margin has already been squeezed. Now, the second cost is game development expenses. So this is the vast majority of EA's R&D expenditures each year. Last fiscal year, they spent $2.19 billion on research and development, or 31% of revenue. Now, both numbers are up from fiscal year 2018, which ended in March of that year, so about five years ago, uh, when they had $1.3 billion in R&D expenses at only 26% of net revenue. Now, that is important to note because our thesis here, and one of the theses on the stock over the next you know, three to five years. One of the reasons we own it is we expect R and D as a percentage of net revenue to quickly decline over the next few years. Obviously, not go to zero, but they're in a heavy games development period. And over the next couple of years, as these games release, games release, hopefully do well. Uh, revenue will go up, and R and D won't go up by as much, or maybe stay around the same level. Now, lastly, self-explanatory one: sales and marketing. As the publisher of the game, EA is responsible for marketing its people or excuse me, marketing at two people. And last fiscal year, marketing expenses were 14% of net revenue. So we got, just to sum it up, cost of revenue, 27% of net revenue. That is fees, R&D expenses, or game development expenses at 31% of net revenue. And then marketing, 14% of net revenue. And then obviously, they'll have G&A expenses, but those should stay fairly stagnant over time. Although the salaries to some of their executive <laughs> executive teams... You know, they they get talked about in the media sometimes as being a little exorbitant um, and that might be true. All right. Next one. Why do we think EA has multiple competitive advantages? This is the heart of any, you know, thesis we have. So, Ryan, why don't you go through it and maybe we'll discuss each of them.
0: Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy.
1: Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
0: Yeah, so the first one is what I talked about earlier. It's it's that massive network effect within a lot of its largest brands. So uh, thanks to live services, if you're a gamer, you want to play where everyone else is kind of playing. And in some cases, certain games they actually have to reach a certain amount of scale to even function properly. And so to kind of illustrate this point, if you've, if, if you don't think network effect or the the other player base is that big of a deal, I recommend going and trying to play FIFA or Madden from past generations. So go try to play FIFA 18 and any of the live services and it's based, you can't find a game. You can't find a peer to play against. Um, and then eat, Even within the current generation, let's say someone built out a competing game, Um, if it was split 50-50, a bunch of the functionality would be destroyed. There's like, it's hard to…
1: Well, there's, there's tournaments, tournaments, different within, skill levels, yeah. right? Yeah.
0: There's different skill levels. There are different tournaments. There's different stages of different tournaments where everyone has to be playing concurrently in order to find a match, to set up a match. There's auctions. You're trading cards literally with other players around the world. If there isn't a certain level of players, if there isn't a certain level of scale, the, the game doesn't function properly. And so I, I think EA's really locked that in. Um, I also think that... Uh, well, I guess I'll save this for another point, but basically people are going to stay there because the best distribution point or the, the best distribution place for next year's game is this year's game. So if you're if you're going to buy or you're going to upgrade to next year's uh, version of fifa or madden or the next uh iteration or season of apex legends you're you're going to get advertised to in the current season or the current game and that's probably where you're going to make your purchase because you get discounts you get different points different incentives to sign up there so uh, it, it makes it so on top of the network effect iterating is more consistent and then your development is more predictable. So, so the development costs aren't quite as risky.
1: Yeah. And then a lot of that, even on non-sports, this applies as well. Um, and it can create while in sports, it kind of creates winner takes all in non-sports. Um, it, it's more of a winner takes most. Now I'll say an example to maybe the detriment of EA is call of duty. That's been a winner takes most in the shooter franchises, the traditional shooter franchises that, um, Battlefield has turned into a more second, you know, it's been the more niche player within that space. However, if we look at battle royale, um, Fortnite was the number one player there. Two other games from Apex Legends and, uh, you know, gosh, Call of Duty Warzone have risen and become popular among their own right. But for two, um, and what? Sorry. G. Yeah, it's I think that's yeah, similar I, I I might be forgetting some, but th- either way, there's only been a few that have reached the necessary scale from a live services perspective, which means you have enough people playing online, you have it, you know, you're able to have the large enough development team to make it worthwhile. Um and with these battle royale or, you know, competition games where you're playing against people around the world, even if it's non-sports, you also need that benefit. So that's why Apex Legends has been such a dime, you know, since it launched in what 2018 or 2019, it has grown so quickly is because it kind of caught fire with that user base, they have this, you know, gigantic user base and the monetization is fairly simple, even if it's a free to play game, as Andrew Wilson quoted recently, they see from engagement to monetization, they basically see a one to one correlation. So if engagement rises, if their user base rises and their daily users and how much they're playing rises, it correlates exactly to monetization they kind of have that honed down as a very experienced games publisher on how to monetize properly which also is probably an advantage that you're going to talk about as well with that scale
0: yeah i guess the i'll save scale for later but the second competitive advantage that i think is worth mentioning is that unlike some other industries so you talked about the battle royale that free-to-play mode um sports-based games are evergreen And because of the ties to the actual sports themselves and the growth of the sports, you're always going to have a consistent fan base. Whereas there's, so there's just less risk of losing that potential, uh, gamer base where you might have with Apex or Fortnite, stuff like that. Typically now Apex has done a pretty good job since it first launched of maintaining its user base, but it's easier for those to stray away and find those gamers to stray away and find different, um, games whereas if you are dedicated to the sport of football you're going to stick with Madden um or you're going to stick with whatever the popular football game is at the time and the 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 growth of the sport overall just drives uh, more adoption for EA's sports based games. so that's another advantage the other one here licenses EA has deals with literally hundreds of organizations and in a lot of cases those licenses are exclusive so i believe la liga now is literally called ea la liga
1: yeah and uh and the easiest one is the nfl which is the one league they have an exclusive deal i think it's 2026 something around there don't quote me on that where no one can make a simulation game until then i mean that's a monopoly by definition
0: right and the other part is that as So let's take FIFA for an example or EA Sports FC, whatever it's going to be called. There's about, there's hundreds of different deals that they've had to sign. So you have different agreements with different leagues, different teams, different, in some cases, you have to sign licensing agreements with stadiums um, in order to use the stadium in the game, that kind of thing. Their bargaining power in those agreements goes up as thanks to the network effect thanks to them being the prominent place in gaming for soccer so they they can kind of get sweetheart deals because if those stadiums or those clubs decide no we're not going to do it they're going to collect no gaming revenue there's no other way for them to get soccer gaming revenue so um that kind of gives them a more advantageous position in those negotiations last thing i'll say here uh scale we talked about it briefly but if you look at commentary from gaming companies dating back to the 90s or the 80s, one of the biggest pain points for the industry is finding enough developers to release all the games that they want to release and to do so on a timely in a timely fashion. EA, because they're so large, is able to pay people more, is able to attract more employees than... Your, your smaller peers. Obviously there are some developers who will want to be in sort of those independent studios and, and build their own thing. But
1: more often than not, if you're able to pay them more, you're probably going to attract them. Yeah. Um, and then there's a, a de-risk the business through diversification, because if we look at, they acquired Respawn Entertainment in 2017, and that is the maker of Apex Legends and Star Wars, uh, the Jedi series, amongst some other stuff, they're kind of having them under development right now. Now the studio has been phenomenal. Like It's its execution has been fantastic for ea however if respawn was under its own on its own it would only have one game and then it was trying to come out with this new apex legends game based on the titanfall franchise that risk of execution if it's just respawn launching this apex legends game is super high if they're on their own but if it's under ea's umbrella they can probably take higher risk because if the game fails it's not as detrimental to ea um they can weather that storm and take more shots on goal without um you know risk of going out of business
0: all right let's talk about their i guess financials why is cash flow you know if you look at the business currently you're going to see basically suppressed cash flow talk about why that is and why we expect it to change
1: yeah and this is another crux of the thesis uh if we look at their five-year chart uh which will be included in the notes that we send out free cash flow has been stuck right above the 1.5 billion dollar range even though revenue has gone up by almost 50 so if we look at the chart uh revenue over the last five years is up 42 percent and free cash flow is barely budged now at first this game was paused we were like why is free cash flow not growing along with revenue um and as we thought about it, and we looked at their games pipeline and kind of the commentary they've had out and their R and D expenses, it all comes down to just game development and then the timing of game releases. Now, when a game gets made, a ton of the expenses are spent upfront. And they're, what's strange is they're including it operating expenses when they really should be capital expenditures. Uh, and I guess that wouldn't affect free cash flow, but just kind of a weird accounting. Uh, the gaming industry has strange accounting, um, but all the revenue is going to be earned after launch. You're not gonna get any before launch. With live services, this even makes it more. Uh, I use the word astute here, but I, I don't think that's the right word. It's even more dragged out, where it takes many, many quarters and possibly years for full monetization to kick into high gear if you have a successful game, as opposed to that flat purchase of sixty dollars while you pay it up front. Now, EA has multiple games in development right now. that are inflating R and D expenses and making its cash flow look weak this year. Guidance for operating cash flow, which translates fairly well into free cash flow is only 1.6 billion to 1.65 billion dollars these include the games under development include ncaa football which has the i think the potential we both think the, the potential to be a live services cash cow uh and be the next you know probably the third biggest sports game under their franchise they have three new star wars games an iron man game a lord of the rings mobile game a battlefield mobile game dead space remake Mass Effect, Need for Speed, and then a skating game. And on top of this, they're investing heavily into Apex Legends Mobile, which was released in 2022 quite recently. Um, It's doing well downloads-wise, but they have not turned on the monetization tools yet. So again, that's an example of they're investing all this in development right now, but they're not going to get that return for a few years after. Um, I'm sure we're missing some on this list, but they just have a huge amount of games coming down the line. A lot of them are not going to get released this fiscal year, but will come out over the next few, you know, in the next couple of years. And are all these games going to be a commercial success? No, I can guarantee you not all of them are going to be a commercial success, but EA is getting a ton of shots on goal over the next few years. Um, and unless the majority of these titles perform poorly, which I guess is a risk, we think there's going to be major leverage on this RD budget over the next two years, likely driving operating cash flow to $3 billion or more each year or annually. And yeah, there'll be some lumpiness in the games industry and it might go lower. But um, part of the thesis is we think there's going to be that inflection going forward. Anything to add there, Ryan, or should we talk about cloud gaming and why we think that can be a great long-term tailwind, especially for electronic arts?
0: Yeah, let's jump to cloud gaming. Uh, The thesis here is pretty simple. Uh, First of all, I personally believe, and I think Brett's in agreement, that cloud gaming is probably where the majority of the gaming market is heading. Uh, I guess mobile is kind of its own
1: thing, but... Mobile is almost already cloud. Uh, so, but just at a smaller, you know, smaller scale, smaller, yeah. you know, less less graphical. Uh, I'm trying to... Uh, less computationally intensive, as I'm trying to say.
0: Yeah, what I mean by cloud gaming is that you have a Bluetooth-connected controller and you have an internet-connected device. And on that internet-connected device, whether that's a smart TV, whether that's... Um, uh, a pc or an ipad you're able to basically click into the xbox app and play live console games without needing the console all you need is that bluetooth connected controller or you could even have it on your phone but
1: and and you don't grip is important and you don't have to download the game to your specific hardware it's all you know streamed in the cloud just like it yeah. Think of it as the Netflix for games and yeah, Xbox is investing heavily in this. Sorry, keep going.
0: Potentially that becomes one subscription that you have to pay. But even if it's just the Xbox cloud app where you could directly play the games, you just pay for the games, you play them. Um, it, it's still, you're still getting similar economics, but it could also be bundled into some sort of a right, subscription.
1: Right. Yeah, the Netflix subscription. subscription. Yeah, it's not the subscription. It's more of how the video gets to the person.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But right now, one of the largest barriers to access for customers is it costs... 500 sometimes six hundred dollars if you're getting all the equipment with it um to really become a console gamer and then you also typically have to pay for Xbox game pass in order to have the live component or you could pay just for live but you might as well pay for game pass now um and so it's a big cost in order to really become a console gamer I think that's part of that plus the current sort of Shortage of supply of consoles has driven sort of stagnation in the console market.
1: I should have included that in the cash flow too. I forgot the con- that that the console shortage is hurting EA's cash flow. Remember, I'll give that note here. Sixty-one percent of their sales came from consoles. So, if less people are getting consoles, less people are playing EA's games. Right.
0: So it, it's pretty simple. As if playing via internet-connected devices becomes more common it's much cheaper for consumers to access AAA games or the console games that have previously been very expensive to get. Um, and in some cases, literally impossible to get. If you wanted an Xbox series X right now, I, I, you may be.
1: Yeah, I, I I checked for research for the show on Amazon. It's by invitation only, which basically means you have to be checking constantly and see when they get supply. And then like someone like me, who's more, you know, not even going to buy one uh, is, is, is just never going to get one until they have fully in stock.
0: Right. Um, but uh, so obviously this benefits, um, this benefits the console developers because a lot of people want access to the games, but can't get them. So it, it clearly makes the pool larger, but these are also the highest or the most immersive games. Um, relative to a lot of the other platforms. So if you're thinking about like mobile, I guess PC could be pretty immersive too, but these are the highest budget, most immersive, most people want to play these, can't get access. So that's going to benefit EA if that's where most of the gaming ends up happening. Additionally, it benefits EA because as I alluded to, 65% of the game sales were digital. So 35% are still physical cartridges, not cartridges, packages, CDs. If you're playing cloud gaming, it's impossible. to. There's nowhere to put a CD. So you're going to buy those games digitally. Uh, That's higher margin. It's not going to create significant operating leverage since we're already sort of reaching that level where most of the game sales are digital, but it's it's increasing, slightly increasing operating leverage uh, for the business as well. Am I missing anything there? I don't think so. All right, let's talk about management capital allocation. Obviously, some people have, I guess, bears, people that are bearish on the stock would say that capital allocation has been pretty bad for management. Um, I guess we kind of think otherwise. So do you want to talk about why you've you've liked the capital allocation decision so far and what you think of uh, the CEO and executive team?
1: Yeah, like you mentioned, uh, just as reference again for listeners, Andrew Wilson has been the helm of EA since 2013, so almost a decade now. you know, we also understand, and I think anyone that knows the company well, listening to this, they know he gets a healthy salary that may up in and in, end up in the news quite a lot. But his execution has been top notch since he took the helm. So, for the C- CEO of a games publisher uh, from an investor perspective, we think the two most important categories are acquisitions and returning capital to shareholders. Specifically, acquisitions are very important because that's part of the nature of, of a large game publisher like EA. They're almost they're basically turning a roll up. That's how they've succeeded over the last few decades. Now, since Wilson took over, acquisitions have been small and less frequent, but have generally worked out well. In 2017, as we mentioned, EA acquired Respawn Entertainment for under 500 million dollars. If you include all the earnout incentives, which, given the execution of that studio, I think they hit all their earnouts. Um, since then, the studio has made the hit Apex Legends game, which does over 1 billion dollars in sales a year, and is building out the hit narrative Star Wars Jedi game, which is one of the top selling. And it's a little bit smaller because it's mainly full game downloads, but one of the top selling games. It's going to have a sequel coming, coming in 2023. In 2021, though, and this is where a lot of people got a bit nervous with EA, they accelerated their acquisition strategy and bought four companies, Codemasters, Glue Mobile, Playdemic, and Metalhead Software. There was around $4 billion in capital spent on the deals. However, what's nice is that EA is so cash generative that they didn't have to dilute shareholders and share count continue to go down. They're able to, you know, spend on buybacks, which I'll talk about next. I don't, and I think Ryan can would agree with me, there, I don't think any of these will be as successful as Respawn. Respawn was one of the best acquisitions in gaming. Mo, I mean, it's early, but one of the best ever. Um, we are optimistic that, you know, given how Wilson has been a bit more capital disciplined, that they see a ton of opportunity within these studios for a reason. And they wanted to acquire all this developmental talent for a reason. They saw the opportunity here. I mean, for Codemaster, it's pretty simple. They own the rights to the F1 game. f one's is going really, really quickly and they've shown tremendous growth again. So they wanted to have that lock on and do that to be another one of their niche licenses, glue mobile. I think they wanted to get the mobile developers. I think they acquired 500 mobile developers to accelerate that development.
0: Yeah. I was going to say a lot of this, some of the thinking here was probably just Aqua hires it's It's easier to buy those all those developers and and they already have the continuity in the team they already know how to work together and to you know generate create really good games together that you can basically just buy the team in one
1: yep and we haven't talked about it much, but a lot of ea's thinking around where they can you know find more growth this decade is to invest smarter into the having some of their uh historical franchises come to mobile. So they've invested heavily in revamping the FIFA soccer mobile. They're coming out with battlefield mobile. Um, that might be on, we don't know when that's going to be released, but it's in development apparently. Um, and then apex mobile. So yeah, those are what the acquisitions are for. Um, yeah, it, it adds risk and it was a lot of money being spent. We don't know. There's a lot of unknowns of how, of whether these will be successful, but given how disciplined Wilson has been, we think there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, it's not the highest part of the, it's not the most important part of the thesis. But lastly, on capital returns, um, since Wilson took over, EA has turned into a heavy share, excuse me, repurchaser with shares that's standing down around 11% in the past 10 years. That might not seem like much to compare to a lot of share cannibals, but we think highly of management teams that consistently buy back their own stock, especially if valuation has become depressed as they are right now. Um, and we expect, you know, as cash flow inflates higher, the dollar amounts flowing into share repurchases to accelerate over the next few years. You know, I mean, if you look at them, anything that's after acquisitions, right, that, that generate their free cash flow and then their definition of free cash flow, you know, doesn't go into acquisitions. After they spend money in acquisitions, almost all of it, I mean, they have a small dividend, but almost all of it goes into buybacks. We like that. The game, they're, you know, Franchises, especially the sports ones, are so predictable that they have the lean balance sheet. They're I mean, compared to someone like Activision Blizzard, who was just and obviously a good business um, that kind of ran into some tough times over the last year, who was just stacking up cash on the balance sheet and what had like $10 billion in cash. We like EA's strategy of returning the cash to shareholders. Is they can grow, say, revenue at a 10% rate, but they're they're reducing share count as well and free cash flow at a 10% rate or something like that, this can add um, be really beneficial, especially with the durability of these franchises. Now, lastly, I think this is the last question. Oh no, we talk about acquisition as well. Okay, last question for you, Ryan. What are the main risks we are watching? What could go wrong here? How will we know if the thesis is busted?
0: Yeah, I'll try to go through these pretty quick because I know we're running maybe slightly long for listeners. So the first one that I think about personally is the loss of relevance of APEX. So it doesn't seem to be happening yet, but as we kind of alluded to earlier, the free to play kind of battle royale market has been changing pretty quickly. Consumers have kind of hopped from game to game. There's been a lot of different successes as well. PUBG, Fortnite, Apex, Call of Duty. Is that Warzone? The
1: popular the Call one? Duty War- I mean, Apex has only been around for a few years. Who knows whether it's yeah. a fad and it's over a billion dollars in their revenue. For reference, they're do about they guiding for about $8 billion in revenue. So it wouldn't kill the business, but it's a large part. Watching,
0: reading through all of the games that EA has released over the years, I was kind of looking through the history. It shows how hard it is to get a franchise that really sticks for more than 10 years. So even though Apex feels like a huge hit right now, there's just always durability concerns there, just given that we haven't seen it stick around for long enough. So that's what I'm watching. Second one, this is more of a short-term issue, but just foreign exchange headwinds. I know a lot of companies are going through this, but um, 57% of EA's revenue last year came from outside the US. It's gonna be, Mm -hmm. uh, there's gonna be quite the headwind on bookings for this year.
1: FIFA's big in Europe.
0: Yeah, management's projecting. That uh, bookings growth in constant currency would be eight to eleven percent, but in reported in actual revenue or actual bookings, it's going to be five to eight percent. So that'll be a headwind. Um, And they said that last quarter, and I think things have gotten worse. So it might even they may even have to revise that guidance as well. Um, The last one, or I guess maybe there's two more, but. The big one that I really, really think about is just the mobile investments not paying off. EA has invested a ton into their mobile business over the last decade, not only through the billions of dollars in acquisitions, which Brett mentioned Glue Mobile, PlayDemic, PopCap Games was like 2011, but still, it's uh, that was one of the acquisitions. That, that was John Riccitello,
1: but I mean, That was kind of a failed went, one, right? So you know, people look at that and say, okay, they bought, spent $4 billion on these other companies. Why are those not going to fail as well? Yeah.
0: And they've also poured a ton of money into internal development for mobile games, uh, Apex mobile, FIFA mobile. Well, they had a FIFA mobile, but they really revamped it. Um, you can you can see that in the development costs. And if you look through management's commentary on the conference calls, they've talked about spending a lot in trying to develop those games. Um, th- th- that's included there as well. And frankly, I kind of, as an investor, hate the mobile market. I have a hard time seeing what's successful. Like if someone pitches a game to me, let's, we we just looked at Rovio. If someone pitched Angry Birds to me, I would have no way of knowing, oh, that's going to be a hit. Yet it's um, generated cash for a decade. Um, I think some of EA's franchises don't lend themselves that well to the mobile landscape. I think FIFA... Hey, the sports added, the sports yeah really are better played on a console and you could even make the same case for apex it's, it's a better experience on console that yeah. doesn't mean they. Can't- well
1: the the review the to be fair the reviews on apex mobile have been fantastic uh but yeah exactly and on the flip side the mobile here like the risk of their franchise not being for mobile mobile's been the big growth driver in the entire gaming market if cloud gaming is going to be as big as we think and we're not basing it off of our own research were kind of going off of the industry experts saying that cloud gaming is the next big thing that could kind of reverse the tide and give a little bit of resurgence for uh, basically consumer adoption among the you know, the more we have a hard time describing uh, the more graphically intensive games that EA develops.
0: Yeah, it just and so mobile tends to be I found that like gaming on mobile tends to be more trendy it's harder to establish a durable franchise. And so when when EA acquires a company for, not just for the development talent, but because they have a franchise that's successful, it kind of worries me just because habits can change so quickly and, and gamer sentiment on mobile can change so fast. So that's kind of something I monitor. I want to keep
1: an eye on mobile revenue. They break it out. So you'll be able to track it. Well, any investor can track it every quarter. It's done well so far, but again, it needs to keep doing well. Right, and then the last one is just,
0: and I, I don't think this will happen, but the failure to adapt to new platforms. So, if if the whole world goes to VR and EA doesn't shift well, that could be detrimental. But
1: we don't even think that, like we. Uh, this has been EA's strength. Yeah, they've been
0: able to adopt or adapt their intellectual property to their franchises to every new successful console, and that has been their bread and butter since. Except, many, except five. Nintendo,
1: who they seem to hate, but.
0: Yeah, uh I think that's more on Nintendo. N- Nintendo seems to have uh difficult relationships with all publishers. But um let's let's hit the last question. There's been a lot of acquisition rumors lately. H- how do you think about that? how likely do you think an acquisition is? Uh, is that setting some sort of a floor for the business?
1: Yeah. So sum it up, I think this is a nice little cherry on top for the EA investment. Uh, rumors have been flowing around the last year that EA has been shopping itself to potential acquisition candidates, likely because they saw the Microsoft Activision Blizzard deal and the premium Microsoft paid for those assets. Now, if the Activision deal Blizzard deal goes through, which will hopefully get approved in 2023, that's kind of the timeline those companies laid out, we kind of see p- the potential for multiple companies to bid for EA. And the most important thing is multiple companies uh, because then there can be a potential bidding war here where you get a nice little premium for EA's assets. Now, the two most likely would be, D- would be Disney or Amazon. Disney already has a relationship and Amazon is trying to get into the entertainment business. Um, and they're building out a cloud gaming thing, which is or something within gaming that is just really, really small right now. Uh, however, you know, any of the tech giants on top of, um Disney or Amazon could kind of get in the mix, probably not Apple, given their acquisition philosophy, but you know meta could acquire them, uh which is Facebook for anyone that's forgotten um Google has been trying to do gaming, although they kind of scaled back a bit um Microsoft probably no Even just th- because of the activision blizzard, but and who am I forgetting?
0: the other thing I'll add here I mean apples in gaming, uh,
1: yeah, but they they don't do big acquisitions, so it's probably out. but yeah the
0: the, I would say the lines between linear entertainment companies and interactive entertainment companies are starting to blur.
1: Yeah, Netflix, Netflix, could, Netflix could be here too, but EA, Comcast, they don't. Comcast is a good one too, I forgot about them. Disney, I don't know if you mentioned Disney. Or I did, but. yeah. I mean, I for the two that seem the most likely to mirror Disney or Amazon. Just because Amazon is trying to get into sports and they're also trying to get into gaming. Um, they have a gaming division and Disney already has, you know, they have sports and the great relationship with uh, electronic arts.
0: Yeah, they both seem possible, and you can kind of piggyback right now. I think there's
1: that's why. Yeah, if that'll be
0: regulatory approval, if Microsoft,
1: yeah, yeah, if Microsoft, the largest, you know, Microsoft and Activision those are can team up. I think, yeah, people will be able to, to acquire EA. Now, on the upside, you know, this could be beneficial to shareholders. Um, we'd probably like to see a thirty to forty percent premium at least on EA EA's current share price, given that we think the stock is pretty under you know, really undervalued versus the cash flow that's coming over the next five years. However, on the downside, it also presents a risk if EA stocks goes down even further, um, you know, just because of broad market stuff or whatever, they have a bad quarter. um, A potential suitor could swoop in and take the company out for less than it's worth. Uh, And, you know, we as shareholders who bought it at slightly higher prices than where it is right now would make little money as common stockholders um, in the deal. So that's a risk. But on the whole, we do think is, you know, it is likely enough, given the rumors that have been out there, to consider as a part of our thesis, again, nice little cherry on top. Um, that, you know, we could get some accelerated returns here over the next uh say year or so. There's the potential there. Hard to put a number on it, maybe 20% chance, something like that. Hard to put a range, but it's high enough to warrant consideration. All right. That's gonna do it. Should we sum things up? um or anything else before we head on yeah i mean live services competitive advantages cheap valuation if you look forward and good well, capital allocation yeah. maybe something we didn't mention that's
0: probably the most important is the overall industry tailwind. oh yeah, yeah sure The yeah. growth of gaming broadly and the growth of gamers globally continues to continues to rise and even if you say well the console market hasn't changed that much mobile or you say mobile is not a big part of their strategy. You can almost use it as just a marketing funnel to the brand. I think a lot of people that play EA mobile or Apex mobile will probably
1: want to have a more immersive experience too. Exactly. Yeah. They're almost, it's really nice when you have that combination of mobile games with your AAA franchises. And I should mention, we didn't talk about like their market cap or stuff like that. Um, Look it up. It's pretty simple, but just the cash flow numbers we're talking about, and part of our thesis, if you look at their market cap, it's kind of uh, self-explanatory. We think they can get to a 10% free cash flow yield uh, fairly quickly. Um, and that's kind of you know, the core reason why we own it. All right. That's going to do it. If you have any questions, email us. Uh, we'd love to chat with any of the people that have questions on Electronic Arts. Thank you all for listening. We're going to go into the housing theme for next month. October is going to be housing month. Check out the Twitter if you want any you know, info on that. Uh, remember, we are not financial advisors and anything we say on the show is not formal advice or recommendation. We are general partners at Arch Capital and clients may hold securities discussed in this podcast. For the Arch Capital episodes, we should disclose that as of this recording, uh, clients do hold securities discussed in this podcast, Electronic Arts. And if you want to check the fund holdings, go to archcapitalfund.com. I'm sure since it's the Arch Capital episode, we will include that in the show notes and you can check out our holdings. We update them monthly. We like to be very public about those and get on our mailing list if you want that. All right. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week.